and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I will be your host in this journey through the underloved and underrated and unknown movies out there that just need a little more love in the world. My movie today is an absolute joy to talk about. I am so excited about this one. This is one of my top 10 favorite movies of all time. We are talking, of course, about the wonderful 1996 love story, The Rock, starring Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage and Ed Harris. Again, just a movie that I could watch over and over and over. One of these that I love talking about. I just love meeting fans of. It's one of my all-time favorite theater experiences. We're going to talk about that when we get into it. Just, It's so much fun to see this one in a theater. This is like the ultimate movie theater popcorn movie. And my guest today is a, a friend of mine who is an equally big fan of this movie. His name is Steve Williams. He is a history teacher. I've known Steve forever. We go way back. We talk on Facebook and the internet all the time. And I just know he is a huge rock fan. He has been excited to come on and talk about this one. So welcome to the show, Steve Williams. Well, thank you, Mario. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I, I can't tell you how long I've been waiting to talk about Dwayne Johnson. Oh, 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 the rock. Okay, I'm sorry. Wrong, wrong, the rock. Yes. Uh, Sean Connery, Nicolas Cage. Uh, I, I am right there with you. It is definitely in my top 10 favorite movies of all time, and I can't wait to get into it. Okay, you are prepared for this one. I'm making sure you're not joking. This is not the Dwayne Johnson movie, right? No, that was, that I was joking. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm, I, it's, it's, I'm no, uh, I'm no Dwayne Johnson expert like I am Nicolas Cage, so. <laughs> Okay, uh, we're going to jump right into this one. I want to know your history with this movie, how you got attached to it, why you love it so much. Again, because I'm assuming most of my audience knows this one, so we're going to delve right into it. What's your history with The Rock? Well, to be honest with you, when uh, you and I kind of talked about what movie maybe uh, that I could do on this, and I mentioned The Rock, I was a little afraid that it wouldn't quite fit your criteria of these underloved, underappreciated movies because... I just kind of assumed everyone loved it like I did. Um, honestly, I didn't grow up watching a ton of movies in the 1990s is my big kind of movie um, time in my life when I was in college and late high school and those sorts of things. And you alluded to the fact of, of watching this movie in the theater. Uh, I remember going to this movie in 1996 with a group of coworkers, actually, Hadn't really seen much of the previews, didn't really know a whole lot about going about it going in. And uh, just remember, I don't remember that many movies, the specific theater experience, but I will never forget just sitting there watching this movie, just absolutely blown away by the nonstop action and just walking out of that theater going, this is a movie that I know I will watch again and again and again. And in years past, it's one of those literally anytime it's on television um, has to be watched. Some friends of mine and I, we would watch it in the years prior. Um, I actually introduced my two sons to it today, as a matter of fact. So I'm trying to pass on the legacy. Wow. And uh, I'm a big Nicolas Cage fan. I loved his period there in the 90s where he became this action star kind of out of nowhere. My wife is maybe the world's biggest Sean Connery fan, and so I've got that working for me. She'll sit down and watch this with me as well, and uh, it, it just has it all. How old are your sons? I'm curious. You're trying to get them into this one. Are they of the appropriate age for a movie like this? Well, 
honestly, I've uh, my wife and I are pretty conservative when it comes to what we let our kids watch. And my sons are actually both 13. They just finished seventh grade. They love action movies. Um, but this is the first rated R movie that I've watched with them. I'm not going to be naive enough to think they haven't seen one somewhere else, perhaps. But this is the first time that I had sat and watched with them. And they're they're fine with the violence because I personally don't think The Rock is that much more violent than some other action movies they've seen. Mm-hmm. The language <laughs> was a little more than they're used to watching, but I'd kind of prepared them for that ahead of time. Uh, what did they think of the prom queen line? I'm just curious. <laughs> Uh, I kind of looked at them after that, and it didn't actually garner a reaction. I think they were probably embarrassed to be sitting there with their dad hearing that line, to be honest with you. Well, let's just hope they grow up to be winners. That's all I'm saying. That that That's the way I am raising them, for sure. They they have not whined about their best yet. So, <laughs> Okay, i got to give my history of this movie, because this is one of my all-time favorite movie stories. And... Anybody who knows me, I'm this big movie nerd. I've grown up my whole life. I'm more interested in going to see movies than I am interacting with people or talking with people or having, like, friends. So, like, this is just... I just grow up in theaters. And this movie came out in June of 1996, and I'll always remember that because 1996, I will always remember as the year of the big blockbuster movie. And for... Yes. Uh, that's I'm going to set a little stage here. This was the summer that, like... Every single week, it was a big, huge blockbuster coming out. It was supposed to be the biggest summer of movies ever. And I'm just going to name some movies now. Not all, all of these are like huge, big hits now. But at the time, these were all hyped as being huge movies. And I remember Mission Impossible, the Tom Cruise movie, was the first one. And yep. I think Twister, the big, uh, <laughs> to this day, I guess people don't remember Helen Hunt was once a huge movie star, but this was supposed to be the biggest thing ever because it had all these special effects. And then there was Dragonheart, the CGI movie with another Sean Connery movie and Dennis Quaid. You had Independence Day, the Will Smith one. And this was like the first two months of the summer of 1996. And it just happened to correlate that that's when I graduated from college. I graduated from college right at the end of May, 1996. And... As with most college grads, I didn't have a whole lot to do. <laughs> didn't have a job yet. Didn't really have to be anywhere. So I always say 1996 was like, in the terms of Seinfeld, the summer of George for me. Where I just basically got to sit around with my shirt off, watching TV, and eating a big block of cheese on the couch my bachelor summer. <laughs> so I had nothing to do but go to see movies. And I remember that summer being such a big deal. And every one of those movies I thought was a little underwhelming. And that I will always remember that. I'm like, Mission Impossible, eh, Twister, eh, Dragonheart was okay, Independence Day was good, but it wasn't as good as everyone was hyping it to be, and right in the middle of that you had The Rock, which came out in June 96, and I had almost no expectations for this one, this was like my sixth or seventh choice that summer, and I remember seeing that in the theater, and to this day I will say this might be the all-time best movie theater experience I've ever had, and this is one thing I want to get across to people why I do a show, a movie like this on this show, if they ever re-release this movie, see it in a theater with a crowd. There's no movie that pops like The Rock. And I just remember just being, like, electrified coming out of that theater. And I had to go and tell my, my girlfriend, no, my wife, Diana, I'm like, you got to see this movie. This is the craziest movie I've ever seen in a theater. And I was so pumped up. So I will always remember this as being the one outstanding movie in the summer where every movie was supposed to be outstanding. Uh, that, that's I, that, I mean that's a great story and that sums it up so well because I remember 
I mean, I, I, I don't believe I saw Mission Impossible at the time it was released in theater. I don't think I saw that one until later. But Twister, and and this is something that I wanted to get into too, I mean, the, the 90s was just this pinnacle, the mid-90s in particular, of so many of these great action movies. Mm-hmm. And with Twister, you're, you're starting to see, and Independence Day certainly, when they're blowing up the White House, you're starting to see more of the computer-generated effects. And while it's super cool and they're showing you things you haven't seen before, on a movie screen, in the back of your mind, you're still knowing that it's not 100% real what you're seeing, even though it's this huge spectacle. And I think, well, when you talk about being underwhelmed by it, it, it took it away. It took away from it a little bit some of those things to me. Whereas, obviously, The Rock, they're using special effects and this sort of thing, but it seemed much more visceral, much more real, um, and 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 that experience stood out to me and now i had not seen um i don't believe a, a michael bay movie before i'd seen the rock i know he hit big with bad boys the year before i had not seen bad boys mm-hmm. and so i wasn't used to his so-called mtv edit style where you know each each cut is about two seconds long in length and you know it just jumps from this to this to this to this so it was a, it was kind of a new style for me as well and and you used the word crazy, and I think that was just a perfect way because I just sat there at the end of this movie, and it was one of these movies where you get the big applause at the end, which doesn't – I've not experienced that very many times in my movie-going career. And and then I just had to sit there for a minute and just kind of take it in for a second what I had just seen just because, you know, you almost felt like you just had, you know finished a workout or something. Yeah, and and for me especially, I'm not really an action movie guy. I mean, there's a lot of action movies that I like, but I'm really either comedy or horror, and every so often a really good dramatic story will pull me in. But it's very rare that I list uh, act straight action movies as among my favorites. Like, people always say, do you like Die Hard? And I'm like, well, I like it, but it's not one that I watch over and over again. It really doesn't call to me that much. But like you said, the mid-'90s was I kind of got seduced by action movies in that era just because... Again, it's kind of right before CGI took over, like you said, and the MTV, that's something that I don't think can be overstated. There's this MTV style of editing that was becoming kind of fashionable at the time in the mid to late 90s where everything's very fast-paced. And I think I read somewhere that the average shot in this, like you said, was like 2.9 seconds. That's the average shot in this movie, and that was incredibly different. There had not been movies shot like that before. So it was very spazzy, frantic, in-your-face, frenetic, and just just different. That's all I can say is that, again, I didn't know anything about Michael Bay. I didn't know. I'd never seen Bad Boys. I didn't know about Simpson and Bruckheimer. I know they did Top Gun. Uh, they did Crimson Tide, which I didn't find out until later. I saw that after The Rock, and I really love Crimson Tide, but it's I just can kind of consider yes. it another variant of The Rock. But, yeah, that whole era was just different, and this movie, again, it wasn't... Again, I can't get uh, overemphasize the the point that this was not a super hyped movie. It was never plugged as going to be one of the big movies of the summer. The commercials didn't really tell you all that much about it. I always remember they would just play We Will Rock You by Queen and just showing the shot of the plane flying up and the rock exploding and Nicolas Cage getting thrown off into the water. Like, the commercials were very, very basic and they didn't detail they didn't give a lot of the details so again this this movie just kind of came out of nowhere and there'd been nothing like it before it just hit me like a ton of bricks and again that whole era i love my three favorite action movies of all time are all from those that three-year period i like speed i like true lies and i like the rock 
And again, it's not a coincidence. They all came from the same period when action movies are really kind of coming into their own. And I think I saw you, Steve, today was just saying that the 90s was all about action movies. And it's really right. That's that's I think that's accurate. That is the golden age of action movies in America, I would say. Yeah, I agree. And I've always considered myself more of an action movie guy. I, I mean, I'm not I've never been, I, I didn't grow up, uh, seeing a ton of movies. My parents didn't take us to the theater a lot. So the nineties is really my era, kind of like you alluded to earlier. During college, we were going to the movies all the time. And, um, I had actually graduated in 1995. And I remember that summer, um, you know, being so hyped for Die Hard with a Vengeance mm-hmm. and, and seeing that with a, you know, some, in the same theater, I remember seeing the rock a year later in um you know in 1994 on the night of the oj chase we had gone and seen speed <laughs> and just you know so all these all these action movies right in that time period and my opportunity to go see them so much more and i, I don't i mean i'm sure i saw ads for the rock like i said earlier but i don't really even remember seeing them and i think this was one of those situations where the less i knew going into this the better because as big of an action fan as I was, had you sat there and told me, yeah, hey, we're, let's go see this movie about a guy who's the only guy to break out of Alcatraz. And now due to some horrific turn of events that involves domestic terrorism, he's got to break back in and take the place back over. I would have been mildly intrigued because as a history teacher, you know, the Alcatraz and the whole lore of that place has always been interesting to me. But from a from a coherent plot story of of, a, of what would make a decent movie, I, I would not have probably put that at the top of my list. So, not, I mean, I, I know I knew what it was going in, but I, I think it was one of these the less I knew, the better. And, and that just allowed me to go in with an open mind and, and just be blown away. By yeah, it. And that's that's something I I have always thought as well it's one of the things like how much do you know going into the story how much you're going to appreciate it for me in particular i went to school in the bay area i went in santa clara california santa clara university san francisco for people who know is just right up the the 101 freeway from san francisco or from santa clara so i was there all the time san francisco one of my favorite cities in the world i love going there i would never in a million years want to live there because it's too expensive but it's my favorite city to visit and that's to me is one of the other draws about this movie it's just such a little love letter to san francisco they have so many little establishing shots and like in a good way not in like a tommy weasel the room way of san francisco right but i'm curious like do you are you familiar with san francisco have you been there a lot of times i've never stepped foot in san francisco i've only actually been in california once and it was to the los angeles area so you know it's it's such an iconic city for anyone who has seen it and and so to to see all the locations you know you see during the car chases you know the cars literally getting airborne flying over these hills because you know that san francisco has all these crazy you know, sloping roads and so forth. Uh, and then, you, you know, you see the Golden Gate Bridge, and at the end you see the rocket flying over uh, the 49ers football stadium and all these <laughs> sorts of things. But having never been there, uh, it, it's amazing as a setting for a movie. I, I mean, it's been the setting for many movies. You go back to, you know, Hitchcock with Vertigo and, you know, all that. But uh, uh, it, having never been there, it really puts you there 
as you're watching yeah, it. Yeah, and that's I'm, I'm glad you hadn't been there, because I was always curious myself if the reason I love this movie so much is because I am so familiar with San Francisco. So it's very kind of heartening to me in a way to hear that someone who doesn't know San Francisco inside and out also loves this movie. So it's not just a it's a it's a story set in a place that I'm familiar with. So thank you. You've made me feel better about my obsessions. Well, good, because, uh, you know, here living in central Illinois, like I do, <laughs> Uh, I, I'm living in a place about as far removed from San Francisco as you can get. They don't have a lot of VX uh, poison gas terrorism attacks in central Illinois? No, um, they don't set up shop in the cornfields and, and threaten to take out the rival soybean farmer. <laughs> okay, um, before we delve into this movie, into the plot and the storyline, a couple things I also just wanted to say right off the top here. Number one, this movie has got one of the most outstanding supporting casts of any movie I can think of. Action, comedy, drama, anything. Nearly every background actor or character in this movie was a big deal in some other movie. And it's fantastic. And that's one of those things you may not even appreciate until you watch it over and over. When you're seeing guys like, uh, we call them that guys. Like, you don't know their name, you just know them as that yes. guy. Like, this whole movie is just that guys. You get David Morris, this one guy is the, the Lieutenant Baxter, or Captain, is he, uh... Captain Major, Major Baxter. Baxter, yeah, like the second in command to Hummel. That's David Morse, who's in like every movie in the '90s. He's in the uh, the Green Mile with Tom Hanks. He's just in everything. You got John C. McGinley in there, who I couldn't even name all the movies he's in. The first one off the top of my head is like Office Space, but I know he's in a ton of other stuff. You got Tony Todd in there, who's Candyman, one of the all-time iconic villains, playing a background role. It's insane, all the people. You got William Forsythe. You got a. Uh, I always forget the, the guy's name who plays Womack, but like every single background actor. John Spencer. Is yeah, that's name. him. But every single, I'm sure I'm forgetting some too. Every single background actor is amazing in this. And now on top of that, we're going to talk about the soundtrack, which might be my all-time favorite movie soundtrack. I cannot have any, tell you how many times I have had the rock soundtrack on CD or MP3 or iPod or something, and I'm just listening to it in the background. It's one of my favorite movie soundtracks. It's so iconic and so stirring and moving. And again, this right off the top of my head, just all these amazing things about this movie that make it so much better than it should be. I mean, I mean am I leaving anything out there? No, it's funny. As I was rewatching it today, I was thinking that that's, I mean, there's no question there's so many elements that go into this movie that make it successful. And I think you've hit upon two of them right there. Number one, the soundtrack is just amazing. And I know Hans Zimmer, I think this was early in his career, and he's since done so many big, well-known movies. And, and any big movie fan probably recognizes his name as a composer now. And he was actually, I believe, one of two composers. He, he did it in conjunction with another guy on this one. Uh, and, yeah, that's a huge part of it. But it's not just the quality uh, of the supporting cast it's how seriously they all take it because if you're going to sell a movie with some of the audacious plot lines and 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 leaps of faith that this movie takes then you've got to be fully invested in it and you watch this movie and all of these huge actors and all these supporting cast members all are you know selling it 100 percent and they're not acting like they're in some crazy over-the-top action movie. They're acting like they're in the world's most serious movie, and that's what gives this movie that that seriousness that I think it needs in, as it's surrounded by all these explosions and crazy set pieces and stunts and all that stuff. 
And, and something that someone had just pointed out to me today, and I'd never noticed this before, he says, uh, watch the rock and pay attention to the color palette. It's got a very distinct color palette that the, the daytime scenes are like totally infused with like extra yellow and orange. And the nighttime scenes are all have this ex extreme blue in them. He said, I've never seen a movie with as vibrant a color palette as The Rock. And it's something you may not notice unless you work on film or developing. Is that something you have noticed as well? It's funny you say that because in, in uh, reading up some things this week about the movie, I read about how when they filmed the scene of... Um, Mason out on the balcony at the hotel getting his hair cut and then he ends up um you know shaking hands with Womack and whipping him over the side and he's hanging from the side of the building they literally filmed that scene at that hotel in San Francisco and there were passers-by seeing this stuntman hanging off the side of the building freaking out calling the police and all this sort of stuff not realizing a film had been seen or the film was being shot at that time but right before that actual happens when he's hanging off, I sat there today watching it, wondering if the scenes right before that, which are on the balcony also, were actually being filmed there because the sky is so blue in those scenes that it almost doesn't look real. And I found myself thinking, well, I know that part of this whole scene was was actually filmed there, so I don't know why this part wouldn't be too but it's when you mentioned that, I was literally just thinking that today. Then the other thing I was thinking, which is somewhat related, is there's so many scenes once they get to Alcatraz that are down in the bowels of the prison and the depths. And it's it's very dark down there, but it's always lit very carefully. I know that the only Academy Award this this movie was nominated for was for sound, but I'm I'm blown away by the lighting in this movie because it would have been very easy to make this much murkier and hard to make out. And they didn't overdo it with the lighting, but it's just enough, like you said, to give it that certain hue to it. But also that it's very easy to make out who's who because you get a movie of this this caliber with all these military guys and you've got your, you know, your SEAL team on one side and you're all your your recon force Marines on the other. And it can be hard to figure out sometimes who's who especially if it's in the dark, but uh, it, they lit it so well that you can always keep track of who's who. And I think that makes you much more invested in the characters and what's going on in the movie. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the underground of uh, Alcatraz because I have two stories I have to tell. This, this podcast is going to go long. I can already tell because we're not we're like 20 minutes and we haven't even talked about the plot yet. But I have to tell this story. <laughs> right. The underground of Alcatraz. One of my favorite things about this movie is that it's like for people who haven't seen it or who haven't haven't seen it in a while. It's just this maze of like uh, mine cars and conveyor belts and <laughs> steam tunnels and like. What's funny is I went to Alcatraz. Again, I've been to San Francisco so many times, and I've only been to Alcatraz itself one time. And for people who don't know, yes, this is a real place, a real federal prison out in the middle of uh, San Francisco Bay that they uh, was active up until the 60s, I believe. So you can go out there and you can do tours. And I finally did the tour for the first time a couple years ago. And when I'm out there... All I want to do is talk to the tour guides. They have these guides that talk, that, that walk you around and give you uh, trivia and stuff. And I just wanted to get this guy's ear. I wanted to talk about the movie The Rock because I'm just a nerd. And what's funny is I didn't even have to bring it up because like five minutes into the tour, this is the, literally like the first thing he says to us. He says, 
First off, we're not going to talk about the movie The Rock. That movie is not realistic. We have no steam tunnels. It is a piece of shit. Like He's like, I don't want to hear anybody have any questions about that stupid movie. Because apparently this is the number one question that everybody comes up and asks when they go to Alcatraz. They all want to go to the steam tunnels. They want to get locked in the cells. And the tour guides hate it. Like, on one hand, they like the movie because it publicizes their place, but it has so many misconceptions about Alcatraz that they're all, like, salty about it, which I thought was the funniest thing because he just had this big chip on his shoulder. He was not going to take questions, and he's like, and we don't lock people in the cells. That was horseshit. So, anyway, I just want people to know how much the tour guides hate this movie with a passion. Well, I was going to ask you that when you started telling this story. I mean, obviously, it doesn't surprise me that there's no steam tunnels and there's no you know, flaming incinerators that you have to roll through with the precise timing and all these sorts of things. But I was curious if they ever allowed tourists to go into the cells like they did in the movie. And obviously, you know, it's a major plot point in the movie that they all get locked in there and taken as hostages. But I was curious if you even got a chance to go in there as a tourist. There's like maybe one cell that you can like pop in at a time and maybe look around. But no, they do not actively put all the people in cells and lock them in. That's nothing like the tour. And I even asked, I said, um, one of the tour guides, I asked him if he was the rocket man and he threw me off the tour. So. (laughs) Okay, so that's my one Alcatraz story. My other one, this is my favorite, one of my all-time favorite movie stories is that there's a, the bad guy in this movie is Womack of the FBI. And Sean Connery's character hates him, and he's always yelling at him, and he's they, they're arch enemies. And at one point, he yells at him, he's like, Womack, you piece of shit. And it's one of the most iconic lines in this movie, and I'm actually shocked that neither one of us has done a Sean Connery impression up to this point, but I'm sure those are coming. But anyway, I had a friend named Mark, and he used to be in my fantasy baseball league back in the 90s. For 10 years, Mark was in my league. Every single year... Mark would draft a player named Tony Womack. There was a shortstop for the Pirates named Tony Womack. Oh, yeah. Every single year, Mark would draft him just so he could announce in his in our draft, Womack, you piece of shit. <laughs> and that's my rock story right there, my fantasy baseball story, that it inspired my friend to draft this loser shortstop every year just so he could drop that line on us. That is such, I mean, that is, like you said, such an iconic line. I mean, I think there if there's two, like seminal moments of, of of the camera focusing in on Sean Connery in that movie. It's obviously after he, he takes the scuffed up quarter and breaks the, uh, the two way glass in the interrogation room, sees Womack there and, and utters the Womack, you piece of shit <laughs> line. And then of course, after he's gone through the wheel of death, uh, flaming incinerator and then comes out back and opens the door for the rest of the people and says, welcome to the rock. To me, those are like the two, like still as many times as I've seen it, like I just can't help but smile on both those, both those lines because they're, they're, they're definitely two of the, uh, the best lines in, in the movie. This is not combat. It's an act of lunacy, General Sher. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There's three. Okay. We will have more Sean Connery. Okay. So speaking of the actors, let's talk about the actors in this movie. You got Nicolas Cage doing his most Nicolas Cagey stuff. You have Sean Connery doing his most Sean Connery stuff to the point that I've actually heard arguments that this is really just a James Bond movie, that it's really Sean Connery's James Bond 30 years in the future doing one last mission, which you could make that argument, I guess, if you wanted to, although they don't obviously say it in the movie. But I will say for my money, the best actor in this movie and the person who never gets the props is Ed Harris. 
is that everyone remembers Cage and Connery. What you don't remember is that this movie has maybe my all-time greatest movie villain, which is compounded by the fact that not only is it a great actor playing him, but he's so three-dimensional and complex to the point that his mission is actually correct. Like, he's actually not a bad guy. His, his logic for why he's doing this is actually very noble and correct. And it makes this movie much deeper than it should be, I think. Yes, I completely agree. What what I think if people haven't seen the movie in a while, they may they they may forget is the first, you know, 20, 25 minutes of the movie is the Ed Harris show. And it's setting up his his major act of taking over Alcatraz. And the the thing the thing I find interesting, and I don't know if this is, you know, kind of a Michael Bay thing to make things more dramatic, but. You know, the first the very first scene of the movie is, you know, these these edited uh, intercut scenes of Ed Harris getting on his full military uniform. And then it's followed up by him going to his wife's grave, who has passed away, I believe, the year before and basically apologizing to her saying, I've tried everything I can. Now I've got to take a bigger step. And please forgive me. And it's just in this drenching downpour. And he, of course, is in no umbrella, nothing. He's just getting soaked. And then they cut right after that to them uh, going to the uh, the weapons facility where they can steal the 15 rockets. And that's also set in this massive downpour. And throughout it all, I mean, I'm sure for, for the actors, filming those scenes was fairly miserable because you're just soaking wet the entire time because they're choosing to to set them in these rainstorms. But to me, just uh, as good as Ed Harris is, it, it's almost like the, the water dripping off his face and just the intensity that they show just adds to it. And it's like when you don't see him, because after those first 20, 25 minutes, then you don't see Ed Harris for about 30 minutes. And you realize how much you miss him when he shows back up again um, after they've set up the whole, you know, good speed gets summoned to San Francisco and they get Mason out and the big car chase and everything. And then, you know, when you finally get out to Alcatraz and you get to see Ed Harris again, you that's when the movie really kicks into high gear because I completely agree with you. I love Nicolas Cage. I love Sean Connery. I love Ed Harris too. And Ed Harris absolutely makes this movie. And you hit it on the head. It's not because just because of his acting abilities, because of the kind of character they made him into being, that he's the so-called villain who is actually doing something he truly believes in, a cause that no one would argue is wrong, and at the end, of course, has trouble following through on what he wanted to do, because ultimately he's not there for people to get killed. I think one of the most telling parts of his character is when he first gets onto Alcatraz Island before they even start to put their plan into place. And he leans down to three little girls and he says, you need to tell your teacher, you need to leave right now. I mean, he's always looking out for the safety of innocent people and never intending to hurt them if he can avoid it. I'm glad you pointed out that scene because that's one that I wanted to talk about as well, that I think a lot of people forget that scene if they haven't watched this movie, that there's a scene literally where he ushers children off of Alcatraz because he doesn't want them to be in harm's way. He knows this could not go well. And it's really odd to see a, an action movie that treats its villain with this much dignity. And that's one of the things that really jumps out at me when I watch The Rock is that 
everybody is doing something that they think is correct for the right reasons. And then like Connery and Cage are kind of forced into it. They don't want to be there, but they kind of have to because they're the good guys. But Ed Harris also sees himself as the good guy. And in a way, he really is the good guy. The government's the bad guys. And it makes this whole the morality of this movie very uh, murky at times. And it's really interesting because you're not used to that in action movies. It's always black and white, good guys versus bad guys. And The Rock has such a unique morality going through it. And again, it's I think people forget that there's always these phases where an actor becomes the biggest thing in the world for a couple of years. And Ed Harris was kind of like that in the mid nineties. I think people forget about Apollo 13 that he kind of stole, he stole that movie from like Tom Hanks, which is hard to do. And then he did this one where I th I'd argue he's actually the biggest actor in this one and the best, best acting does the best acting job overall. So it's like, this was kind of the Ed Harris era where he was this big dominant force in movies for a while. And again, I just am so happy that he was a part of this one at his peak because I think he's the part that kind of gets overlooked in this movie what a uh interesting three-dimensional uh it's again i don't even know like villain but he's the the guy that drives the story all the way through and i've heard people say well he does a face turn at the end and i'd argue he never really does a face turn because he's never actually the villain the, the government's the villain and he knows this so it's again it's it makes it a very a much richer viewing experience than most action movies would be i think yeah but you're you're you, you hit it on the head you're used to these black and white good guys bad guys thing and you 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 watch this movie for the first time and the setup is he's the bad guy and the fbi are the good guys and yet the case can be made that womack is a much much worse person in this movie even though he's the fbi director than than hummel is at harris's character um and and womack it's it's mainly the way he has treated mason for 30 years and how he continues to treat him throughout the entire movie uh culminating in like insistence on actually seeing the dead body um ed, ed harris is is not the bad when he has a chance to be the bad guy toward the end of the movie and and he the the, the rocket is launched he's calmly sitting in his computer retyping in the coordinates to make sure it misses and goes out to sea I, I, I agree. I don't think he ever intended. He knew what his plan was all along. He was hoping his plan would work, but he was never to the point where he was planning on using the rockets to kill a million innocent people because ultimately he's not that guy. And, and I agree with you. This whole mid nineties era for, for Ed Harris is just powerhouse movie after powerhouse movie. Apollo 13 is another movie I've probably seen as many times as I've seen the rock. And I agree with you. He absolutely carries that movie and i think it's not too many years after this his great role in the truman show with jim mm -hmm. carrey uh, is a great role for him it's funny my sons love the national treasure movies and so they are used to nicholas cage as benjamin <laughs> gates in, in national treasure one and two and they saw ed harris pop up and they say oh there's mitch wilkinson from national treasure two so they were throughout the movie, actually, when we were watching it today, it, when those two would be uh, in scenes together, it was, hey, there's there's Ben Gates versus Mitch Wilkinson. And I'm like, yeah, those are great movies. But, uh, you know, this is about 11 years before <laughs> that, guys, 12, whatever it was. So uh, but it's that that's what they're used to. And uh, I, I'm looking forward to showing them some more of the, this era of the roles that both those guys play because there's so many good ones. All right, let, let's talk about Nicolas Cage for a second there since you uh, threw out the C word. 
<laughs> Nicolas Cage, one of the most divisive actors out there. A lot of people love him. A lot of people can't stand him. I find Nicolas Cage so interesting in movies, and it's it's hilarious. My wife and I have a running joke. We we have listened to the director's commentary of The Rock. Have you heard the commentary for this one? I have it, but I've never actually listened to it. It's really just Nicolas Cage being the most pretentious douche ever. To the point he talks about, you know, he was given the script and I liked it, but I felt that that uh, Goodspeed had to had all these quirks about his personality. I felt that would be more interesting to the audience. So he's like, he made he made Goodspeed a Beatles fan, a classic rock fan. That was something he brought to the script, and he like would refuse to do it until they brought in classic rock elements into the movie. And it's funny, the word that Cage uses a lot in in the commentary is accoutrements. I felt that I needed lots of accoutrements to make Goodspeed a relatable <laughs> character. So that's something my wife and I quote all the time when whenever an actor's kind of being all pretentious in an interview. Oh, oh, it's uh, Nicolas Cage with his accoutrements. So it's, <laughs> yeah, Cage is one of those people that a lot of people don't like. I love him in this movie. I think he's so interesting with some of the character choices he does and just how he'll overact, the way he reads lines that don't really fit standard meter of English sometimes where he's making up words. I think I read somewhere that he decided that Stanley Goodspeed would not swear. So he's making up like cock a and gee whiz. Like he's doing all these Mormon replacement swears in this movie <laughs> and just little stuff like this. And I think I read somewhere that I read a review that said, you love Nicholas cage just overacting every single scene he can. Like there's a scene in this movie where he has to open an envelope and he doesn't just rip it open. Like it's a full body tear. He has to put his whole body into ripping the envelope open just because that's what Nicholas cage does. And there's a scene at the end of the movie where, where Stanley Goodspeed has to inject atropine into his heart. Like it's the old Pulp Fiction treatment. And I'm like, if there's ever an actor, I would like to overact and see doing full body twitches. Cause he's directed injecting adrenaline into his heart. I'm glad we finally got Nicholas cage and he had a chance to do that because there's never been a scene that was more made for him. Like go out there and spasm as overacting as you can and have fun with it. Yeah. I can just imagine, you know, Nicholas cage picking up the script for this movie reading these lines and and saying to himself okay i'm not going to ad lib and necessarily change words around but it's just how can i deliver this line written as it is in the most unorthodox way possible and that's it's his voice inflections it's his facial expressions it's it's sometimes even the position i mean i i have no idea when goodspeed and mason get locked in the cells about two-thirds of the way through the movie and he does the entire scene laying flat on his back with his arms splayed out, his legs splayed out. Maybe that's the way it was written in the script. Somehow I have my doubts. I have a feeling that he insisted that, you know, that gave him the most defeatist uh, uh, because at this point it seems like all hope is lost. And so he just has to be completely spent on the floor of the cell. Um, and then, of course, only gets up when uh, he he uses the famous Zeus's butthole line. Um, but I, you know, I was just watching that today, and and the camera shot actually, if if, if people have seen it recently, actually shows him upside down almost the whole movie, almost like he's hanging from the ceiling or something from his feet, which maybe he did in another take for all we know. And it's I, I I'm with you. I just he's just so interesting to watch, and I know he's accused of being this huge overactor and hamming it up and all this sort of stuff. But when you know he becomes this action star in the 1990s by doing The Rock, followed swiftly by Con Air, 
followed swiftly by Face Off, and all three are completely different characters, and he overacts in three completely <laughs> different ways in those three films. It, it's just, you, you figure, I've seen one, what else can I see him do? And then you find the next movie and find that he's found even new ways to change things up. It's just, I, it, like him or not, he's, he definitely makes things more interesting. Yeah, I hear people say that I, they can't watch movies if Nicolas Cage is in them because they find him too distracting. And I'm like, I think he's so fun to watch in movies. That's, that, but again, that's probably how I look at movies compared to other people. I don't really take them all dead serious. I just like seeing interesting things. And yeah, there's no more interesting things. And again, I think this might have been Nicolas Cage's first action movie. And yeah, he's, he's really treading new waters here. The line, um, that you said earlier, how in the name of Zeus's butthole did you get out of your cell in the first place? I read that he fought with the director over that line, that the director wanted to cut that. And that's like an ad lib that Cage had done. And Cage was so so insistent they had to use the butthole line that he would he'd fight he, that was the hill that he was going to die on we had to have this line in the movie so i'm <laughs> so appreciative of nicholas cage and his accoutrements and his rocket man stuff that he brought to this movie that made it again just made it more fun than it probably should have been and this is on top of like you said sean connery also does the same thing where he has weird line inflections and all sorts of stuff. just just a hilarious diatribe of different line readings and interpretations that you then you'd kind of expect and that's why this movie i think when i first saw it that's one of the things that jumped out at me is that it's got sense of such a fun sense of humor like yeah it's all testosterone and action and michael bay and jump cuts but it's got this this weird fun sense of humor underneath it that you don't think is going to be there and i think that's what really called out to me the first time and then on top of that then we got uh, i guess we'll talk about it um, with ed, ed harris but like when ed harris dies in this movie spoiler that the the villain's gonna die about 20 minutes before the ending it's like one of the saddest scenes in the movie like we're messing with my emotions i'm not supposed to feel bad that he died it's just it's again it's just a wonderful melange of all sorts of unexpected things going on that you wouldn't think would be in just a simple action movie yeah i mean when when you're that invested in the so-called villain when as you say you're 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 kind of taken aback when he dies and he and not to give a spoiler away like you said if people haven't seen it but he he dies um in a firefight that is actually between some of his own guys and of course then you know mason and goodspeed are in the next room shooting through a vent in the wall and joining the party but um yeah you, you just find yourself I don't know if rooting for him is quite the right word, but, uh, feel bad. you know, he just kind of leans back against the wall and then he kind of slowly slumps over and the blood is streaked along the wall. And I, I find it interesting. They don't focus on it that long. You see it obviously because Michael Bay isn't going to leave a, leave a scene for more than three seconds, but you know, it's kind of a quick, Oh, he dies. He slumps. He kind of slumps over on the side and then immediately it's on to the next thing. But just those two or three seconds really hit you. All right. We are like 45 minutes into this podcast. We haven't even talked about the plot of the movie. Are you ready to do a quick, this is not going to be super in depth. I mean, I'm assuming people know the basic gist, but are you ready to kind of walk through the plot of the rock? Yes, absolutely. All right. Throw down. Well, uh, basically as, I th feel like we've alluded to so much of this in the first uh, 45 minutes, but uh, basically Ed Harris is a uh, brigadier general from the United States Marines who has basically spent his Marine career starting in Vietnam through Desert Storm fighting with all of these Marines who basically do all the dirty work. They do all the undercover 
not ever reported on things that allow our military to be successful. And when these guys die, nothing is ever reported. Their families are told lies and they're never compensated. And so to get back what he feels he is owed and these families are owed, he and a group of soldiers steal a bunch of VX gas rockets. They take over Alcatraz and they demand a hundred million dollars from the government uh, one million for each of the 83 families of these soldiers that have never been compensated. And then, of course, they're going to split the rest amongst all these mercenaries that they, they've hired. Nicholas Cage's character, Stanley Goodspeed, is the leading FBI chemical weapons expert. And so with VX gas in the picture, he's summoned out to San Francisco and all the bigwigs in Washington, D.C. realize, hey, we can't neutralize the gas any other way except to get in there somehow. And that's where Sean Connery comes in. Sean Connery is a former British agent who uh, has been incarcerated for 30 years because he stole all these secret FBI files from J. Edgar Hoover. And now, since he was the only man to successfully escape from Alcatraz, they need him to get back in all right, let me jump in here real quick. Let's let's let gloss over some of the stuff you talked about here. The VX2 poison gas, or the VX, is it VX or VX2? Now I forget. I think it's VX2, but I don't, I, I remember seeing VX2 on like the wall of the place where they steal it from, but it does seem like it's referred to as VX poison for the rest of the film. Okay, now VX is a real substance, right? Have you actually done some research on this, I would hope? Yes, yeah, it's a real thing. Okay, yeah, and I, I used to work with a guy in the late 90s, and he was like this military weapons expert, and he would, he would love to talk about The Rock, and he's like, you know, VX gas, that's real stuff, it's really scary, and I'm like, how real is it in the movie, the way they presented it, he's like, not at all. He's right. like, they wouldn't put it in the, in the green balls, the string of pearls, like, all that's just for the movie, that was so unrealistic, and like, he'd all love to point out all the flaws, but... I have to say how awesome those little green balls of VX gas are throughout the movie. I think that's such a cool little visual, but, and I will be the first person to admit, I fully understand that that is in no way realistic of how that gas would be transported. Right. I think uh, uh, some things I was reading, and I'm sure you were probably going to bring this up later, of course, is that uh, in, I think, 2003, part of the uh, so-called intelligence against Saddam Hussein in the Iraqi war is that they saw evidence of an increasing chemical weapons program. And in describing what this so-called witness spotted in Iraq, he describes it very similar to what the VX gas is treated as in the rock. And of course, in response to this, people who worked on the movie and knew the chemical were like, anyone who knows anything about this knows that that was completely false and completely made up. And, um, it kind of becomes this big scandal that the rock actually leads to in part the Iraqi war because they base their intelligence on these nice little green balls that, uh, you know, <laughs> when, when they break, you know, the person nearby dies instantly, their skin boils up, they're bubbling and they're, you know, all this sort of thing. But I agree with you, the visual, I love, I love the part at the very end. I believe it's when he's he's dismantling the very last rocket, but yet uh, one of the bad guys is is shooting at him, and he has to like open up this grate and just carefully lay these fifteen incredibly poisonous balls down in this like sewer grate and put the lid back on for safekeeping. 
you know, because that's the only <laughs> place he has at the time. And then, of course, you know, he, he carries the last one, which ends up sticking in his mouth. But, uh, yeah, the, 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 the color of it and, yeah, the whole the whole look of that, I agree. It's not at all real, but it sure makes for a good look in the movie. When I was on the uh, Alcatraz tour, I actually asked my tour guide where the grate was, where Nicolas Cage put the VX poison gas, and he called me the F word. So I felt that was very inappropriate. I can't, I can't believe that they didn't invite you back for another tour. <laughs> yeah. So uh, okay, so so indirectly, this movie led to the Iraqi War, is what you're saying, correct? Well, it sure seems that way to me. I mean, when you're basing your intelligence reports on what they're, you're supposedly seeing, and yet instead you're describing the elements of a 1996 uh, action movie, <laughs> I'm not sure you're 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 getting your best intelligence reports possible there. Well, I mean, you're a history teacher, so we will talk to all the younger members of my my listeners here that most people who grew up in the 90s remember how Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery toppled the Iraqi regime of Saddam Hussein. So, absolutely, as a history teacher, you can back that up. <laughs> No, none of that happened. I'm just making sure I know that people know that's a joke. There was the, this movie did indeed, I think, lead to the war for the people of Iraq are bad. That's right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, good things come from this movie in unexpected ways, I guess. <laughs> yes. OK. Yeah. So. So, yeah, that's the plot of the movie is that um, Major uh, uh, General Hummel has he's upset these treatment about these fallen black ops soldiers that never get reparations. And again, that's a real thing. I've read other uh, articles about this movie that say that is a real issue that people, their families are never compensated. They don't get military burials. They don't get medals because the U.S. can never admit we sent soldiers into these places. So this is a very real topical thing that a soldier would really it would stick in his craw why it's unfair. So that's the plot of this movie. It's kind of based in reality. And so Hummel is trying to get the government to pay these families their money. He takes all these VX rockets. He points them on Alcatraz or he puts them on Alcatraz. He points them at San Francisco, which for people who haven't been there, Alcatraz is really only like it's right out in the bay. You can see it from San Francisco. It's very close. A rocket from there to San Francisco would not be very far. And it's so isolated. That's the thing. There's no way to reach Alcatraz other than a boat. So he's it's a really perfect military stronghold where it's impenetrable and there's no access points other than underwater. So really like the the thinking behind this movie is actually quite sound. That would work if someone were to do a uh, a terrorist activity like that that it would be an actually very good place to set up a base. Well, and again, I think that speaks to why this isn't just your every every man action movie mindless action not only because of the real life dilemma that Hummel is fighting for, but because while yes, it's not necessarily realistic to ever think that someone would take over Alcatraz as a military stronghold in order to, you know, use it to launch an attack. I mean, as you say, it's, it's doable. It's not some completely far-fetched ridiculous premise um, that couldn't ever possibly happen. And, since Alcatraz has always had this unbelievable mystique about it because no one is known to have ever successfully escaped from it. And now you're preposterously explaining that not only did this guy do it, but he's going to sneak back in undetected 30 years later. When you see, you know, if you go back to the late seventies where Clint Eastwood did his escape from Alcatraz movie, I've always loved that movie too. And I think so many people, just the lore of Alcatraz, this, forbidden isolated island but yet as you say it's close enough that if someone ever managed to get off the island it's certainly 
conceivable to think that they could get to shore and escape and disappear in San Francisco and move elsewhere. But yet no one's ever proven to have done that. And so I, I think that whole backstory just is such an iconic location that just really makes this movie. Yeah, you cannot walk up and down the San Francisco waterfront and not see Alcatraz. It just looms. You can just see it. It's such a cool little thing. And again, that's one of the things why I think this movie has so much awesome depth to it. Again, go to San Francisco and you look, walk around and you'll see Alcatraz and you'll think of this movie and you'll just realize how close that is and how something like this, not specifically with the VX rockets, but something like that really could happen. Like it's, again, I can't get over how kind of sound the thinking behind, uh, his plot is and i'm gonna just whip through this the a couple of scenes here in the movie that that hummel gets out on alcatraz he's got all these former marines that have joined him all these uh and he's got a couple of battalions of them fly out and meet him there and basically he takes over the island after he's shuttled off all the kids he takes a bunch of tourists hostage in the in their cells and he gives this great speech. And again, this whole movie is just great speeches by Ed Harris. And he talks about how, you know, we'll be branded as traitors. But there was a couple other traitors in American history, too. They were Washington, Jefferson, and Adams. And now everyone calls them patriots. One day we will be, too. And again, he's not wrong. That's the one thing that I love thinking about. Like, that really was what Washington, Jefferson, and Adams, that's so much of American history, is based on us just rebelling and being traitors against people that we should have been listening to. So like, he's not wrong. And that's the thing that Ed Harris can just, he digs into these speeches and these rah, rah speeches and the music plays behind him. And you kind of, you kind of see his point. Yeah. I found myself as I watched it today thinking if you would have told me if I didn't know who Ed Harris was, I didn't know he was this famous actor and you'd have told me they actually took a military general and gave him acting lessons and said, you're going to play this part in this movie because we know you'll be very convincing as a military figure. And that's who ends up playing it. I, I would have been sold because everything about, I mean, I'm no military expert by any means, but everything about his comportment and his speech patterns and his fervor and his patriotism and his resolve for that what he's doing is right just speaks so much to this guy who spent his entire life fighting for his country believes so strongly in what his country does but yet at the same time has this huge issue he doesn't love his country any less he just loves this element of the government that won't recognize these soldiers that he's fought for and um it's a great parallel when he brings up washington adams and jeffersons and how they were seen as traitors against the british during the revolution and later in the film when uh, Sean Connery's character, John Mason, basically voluntarily allows himself to be captured. Uh, and he has this great scene with Ed Harris where Ed Harris brings out the famous, I believe it's a Thomas Jefferson quote about how the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants, which is such, just such a great visual quote to me to just picture that tree and and being watered with blood. And then, of course, Connery's character retorts with uh, something like patriotism is is the work of madmen or something, which is a quote from Oscar Wilde. So I'm I'm just struck by the audacity that one is quoting this great American patriot president hero. And, and the British guy retorts with a, a quote by a, a gay playwright and thinks that has the same <laughs> sort of sort of uh, 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 weight to it, but that's that's what he knows as the British guy. So, Well, I'm really glad that you're a history teacher and I have you on here because I am fascinated by reading about American history, and it's really 
interesting, the more you read about it, you get out of school and you start reading about it on your own, how murky American history really is. And I know, do they teach that nowadays? Do they like to teach that Americans might not have always been the good guys and stuff? Or do they still kind of sanitize it as they would have done in, done in the 80s? I'm curious. I, I suppose um, you're going to have to take that on a case-by-case -case basis. I mean, you're in my, from my experience, you are given materials to work with, but I've always been allowed fairly wide latitude about how I go about explaining things. And so I feel like I've learned so much more U.S. history teaching it than I ever did as a student. And as you say, the more you read about it and you get other sources and materials and so forth, and you find out different things. And um, I, I, I try to show my students both sides of things and say, you know, we love America and we're the greatest country in the world, but let's not pretend that we haven't made our mistakes. And when you're talking about the American Revolution, yeah, we appreciate a guy like John Adams, who was this great patriot who was instrumental in developing the Declaration of Independence. And yet at the same time, here's the same guy who a year earlier is the only lawyer in town who will defend the British soldiers from the Boston Massacre. And people are mm -hmm. like, how in the world can you possibly defend this? And it's not that he was defending them because he thought they were correct. He was defending them because he felt that everybody deserved to be defended by a lawyer in the court of law, which is true. But, you know, here's this guy. He's a complex character, just kind of like Hummel that we're talking about. And these. So I, I, I feel like um, I can't speak for every school district, every teacher, but I think. You want, if you want me to get my soapbox, I will say that we've shifted so much these days into math and reading and those things being so much more important. It's what all the testing is done on. Social studies kind of takes a backseat to all that stuff. History, what I teach, we don't get tested on it. We don't have to, you know, do all those things. So I, in a weird way, I think that it gives me a little more latitude because people aren't really paying attention to what I'm doing. Okay, yeah, that's good to know, because, again, I had no interest in history when I was growing up. I thought it was the most boring class in school. And then I get out of school and I start reading books, and I think American history is the most fascinating thing to read about. And it's one of those things I always wondered how teachers managed to make it boring, because it's so cool. And like you said, if they're not really paying attention to what you teach, you can kind of have a little more latitude to get into more of the uh, nefarious uh, undersides of history, which is kind of interesting. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think if you can just teach kids to think for themselves and you say, hey, I'll present, you know, information to you, but I'm not going to tell you 100 percent what's true and what's not. And then you're going to, you know, give you opportunities to research more on your own and figure out things for yourself. But I think you hit it on the head. History is one of those subjects where it, the teacher can really make or break it. And I tell I've been teaching for 22 years and I tell kids literally every year at the beginning, I said, please, no matter what you've thought about history up until this point in your lives, all I ask is you come in here with an open mind and hopefully you'll appreciate it more after you've had my class than you have before. I'm, and, and, and I think if kids are telling me the truth, I managed to get them to appreciate it more and you know, part of that's having fun with it and, and trying to make it interesting, which some teachers, I think, are just literally incapable of doing. Yeah, it, I'm so torn because I want to keep going on this topic, but that has nothing to do with The Rock. So anyway, if you guys if you guys are interested in a director's cut of this interview, ask me to come back with Steve and we'll talk about history because I would love to. But let's get back to The Rock here in the interest of keeping this under two hours. <laughs> 
Okay, so anyway, yeah, so Hummel and his soldiers are all on the rock, and they have at a, strate a strategic position with these rockets with this horrible, horrible VX gas that can kill 80,000 people with a teaspoon of it in the atmosphere. It's like the worst substance on Earth. And the, F and the uh, government, the Pentagon, basically has two options at this point. We can either basically nuke the island, fly a bunch of F-18s over there and drop thermite plasma on it and kill everybody, including all the hostages, which would be a horrible, horrible political hit because everyone will be pissed because they might not even realize we were in danger. Or we can send in a SEAL team, a Navy SEAL team, with our top FBI uh, chemical super freak, Nicolas Cage, and we can do an excursion. They will try to take over the take over the Marines and basically will neutralize the threat before anybody knows. And, and, uh, and that will be the whole weighing in this movie is what we're going to do. Are we going to we're going to plasma everybody and kill everyone on the island or will the SEAL team be able to pull it off and they decide we're going to pull off the SEAL team. They bring Nicolas Cage in who's the top chemical weapons expert in the uh, FBI even though he's a huge nerd. He's never been in combat, never fired a gun, just nervous, twitchy Nicolas Cage as Stanley Goodspeed. And as the plot would have it, we happen to have this guy we've locked in prison for 30 years who was this uh, British secret intelligence guy named John Mason, Sean Connery. And apparently he escaped from Alcatraz 30 years ago. He was the only person who ever escaped. We locked him in a prison. He was like a... This counterintelligence guy, he knew all of American secrets back in the 60s and 70s. Apparently, he's got some microfilm on him that shows all of our most embarrassing secrets, like what happened at Roswell, what happened at JFK, like real mysteries in American history, which I think is kind of cool. And so they team these guys up. They uh, hook them up with a real naval Navy SEAL team led by another that guy, Michael Bean, yes. another guy who's amazing in this movie. And they send him out, and that's... That's really going to be what's going to drive this movie is the good guy SEAL team against these bad guy Marines. And what will happen is I'm kind of shortening, shortchanging Michael Bean. He has some really good speeches about how we, you know, we're going to we're going to fight. And we got this great SEAL team behind us. and He has some great scenes. And basically the entire SEAL team gets wiped out in an ambush about 10 minutes into the Alcatraz trip. And it comes down to Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery against an entire platoon of elite Marines. And that's why I think this movie kind of calls to people, because it's not just like Bruce Willis fighting a bunch of terrorists. It's not Arnold Schwarzenegger, who I think I read was attached to this movie at one time, but he turned it down because he didn't like the script. But that that's the, that's the, why this movie stands out. It's this little nerdy guy and this old guy against all these Marines, and they shouldn't manage to pull it off, and they somehow do. It's the ultimate underdog thing with all these stakes and this looming threat over everyone's head that in 40 hours the deadline's up and the terrorists are either going to launch the rockets or the government's going to drop thermite plasma on us. And it's really just a roller coaster ride for the last hour of the movie to the point it's just, again, I cannot say enough about how fun and big and exciting and bold this movie is. And uh, let's just, uh, anything you want to talk about specifically before we kind of get to the ending here? Because I want to talk about the last 20 minutes of this movie. Well, I just, to, to follow up your point you just made, I think what I love about Nicolas Cage's character in particular is, he, you know, obviously there's obvious things that they show, like, you know, when they take Mason up to the suite and Cage, you know, turns to uh, Paxton, who we haven't even talked about. He's the, he's the FBI <laughs> agent for the West Coast. And basically says, um, I, I don't even have a gun. Uh, so I mean, they just make it very obvious this guy is completely unprepared for what he's about to do. But then there's just so many little scenes. I mean, they, they, there's a quick scene of him after he's told what he's going to do and how he's going out of the island where he's in the bathroom throwing up. He's so nervous. He's so, you know, on the plane on the way over there, his legs can't stop jiggling and jumping. I think it's just amazing 
the transformation you watch him go through as this chemical nerd who never sees combat and is just completely freaking out about what he's asked to do. And then you get this iconic shower room scene that you alluded to where the entire Navy SEAL team is wiped out by Hummel's men, which is such a powerful scene. Number one, because Hummel the entire time is screaming for them to cease fire and his men are just wiping these guys out. And that's another great scene with the, you know, so much of it is in slow motion and the music is swelling and it's very dramatic. But at, after that scene's over, it's Mason and Goodspeed. That's all that's left. And Goodspeed is forced to, whether he wants to do it or not, suddenly have to step up and be the FBI agent that he's been trained to do, even if he's never actually had to do it. And then after this, you know, he just he starts doing things he never would have dreamed of doing the day before, literally, but it's just kind of a testament to the extraordinary things that people are able to do when they find themselves in extraordinary circumstances. Yeah, there's one scene that we've kind of glossed over, and I just have to mention it just for my own peace of mind, that I do not, as much as I love The Rock, I love almost everything about this movie, there's one flaw in it in my mind, and it always bugged me, and I will say in 96 when I watched it, I was kind of disappointed watching this movie until we get towards the end, and it's the car chase scene. I'm sure you don't know which scene I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is Hollywood rules that if you set a movie in San Francisco, it must feature a car chase at one point. And this movie is no exception. There's a scene when they first get to San Francisco. Uh, Sean Connery steals a Humvee. I'm just borrowing the Humvee. Yeah. <laughs> so he borrows a Humvee and the Nicolas Cage has to steal this yellow Ferrari to go after him. And it's a... It's a fun car chase, but it always bothers me because the entire thing is shot in close-up. And they had a bad habit of doing that in the 90s in movies. They would always do close-up on these action scenes. They wouldn't let you zoom back a little to kind of catch what's going on. And I will say, as fun as the car chase is, and there's some great scenes with the with the cable car operator, like, oh, going down. Like, there's all sorts of fun stuff. But it always bothers me that the entire thing is shot in close-up. And I just remember being angry about that at the time. Like, this movie, again, my all-time favorite action movie nothing's ever going to top it i think this should be the goalpost of all action movies but i always wish that car chase was a little better and they had pulled back and let it breathe a little bit it always bothers me well the other thing too is and and, and i think i think i've read that michael bay wanted this to be the case but it, it includes every cliche of every car chase you've ever seen in your life too between the giant truck full of water bottles that of course gets <laughs> gets busted into and 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 you know i I was just you know there at one point there's the old lady slowly starting to go across the street that you know they have to avoid i mean all they were missing was the two guys carrying the giant plate glass that the cars would go through um and and so if you if you've seen car chases you kind of see every element but at the same time i think there was a very concerted effort in this movie to reference so many other movies and I think that's part of it. It's kind of a wink and a nod maybe to some of the influences and so forth. Like you referenced earlier when Goodspeed has to plunge the needle into his chest, which is <laughs> Pulp Fiction from two years before that to, you know, the scene where Hummel uh, basically it's a standoff between him and Major Baxter and these these two captains. And they're all pointing guns at each other, like in Reservoir Dogs. It seems like Michael <laughs> Bay must have been a big Tarantino fan. Um was but you know there's all these references and i think that car chase scene is one of these i think i've read that um you know there's it takes so much from uh, steve mcqueen's bullet which is you know (laughs) 
quintessential yeah. car chase through San Francisco and all these same elements. But it's funny, I, I hadn't really thought about what you said about the close-up, but now thinking back on that scene, I think you're absolutely right. I think it would have taken even more more impact if they had put the camera out a little bit. Yeah, it and it would piss me off more if that was a more significant scene in the movie. It's not. It's really just time right, filler until they get fun. everybody out in Alcatraz. Yeah, but it always kills me that that car chase could have been better because there's so much cool stuff going on in it. They just don't really execute it well although i will say that i'm glad you brought up bullet because here's here's an impression of me growing up in uh, washington in the 70s 80s and 90s here's an impression of my dad hey mario bullet's on come watch this car chase <laughs> every single time bullet was on my dad would summon me i had to watch it because of the car chase because it was his favorite movie scene of all time so i grew up all about san francisco car chases i know all about them so yeah i know this was an homage but again i just wish that one part had been executed a little better yeah i could totally see that like i said i think that 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 that's the one part of the movie that seems a little more cliched in the typical action movie uh scenes than than many of the others but it's it's followed, of course, by or excuse me, it's preceded, of course, by the scene where Sean Connery meets up with this daughter that he hasn't seen practically. He, I think he says that the last time he saw a picture of her was when she was 10. And when I first saw this movie and I wasn't the savvy movie viewer that I am today, I, I thought, you know, that scene, you know, it's kind of a throwaway. He sees his daughter and then, you know, two minutes later. The FBI, the FBI's on him and, you know, she's disappointed and, oh, you broke out again and this sort of stuff. But obviously that scene comes back into play later when Mason is ready to get the heck off Alcatraz and he sees a chance to be free. And he realizes if he doesn't stick around and help Goodspeed dismantle these last rockets, then they're going to fire on San Francisco and his daughter is going to die. And so that does allow him some buy in. Here's this guy who's been in prison for 30 years. You wouldn't think he cared what happened to anybody else, but he has this one person in the entire city of San Francisco that he realizes if I have to do what I have to do to save her, I'm going to do it, even though I've not even been there for any part of her life. Okay, so let's go to the end part of this movie, because there's a lot here I want to talk about. Again, this might be my all-time favorite movie ending. So basically... um Cage and Connery sneak around like little rodents. They get called rodents because they're underneath the tunnels and they're, you know, going left and right. And and uh, Mason is killing people and Connor and uh, Goodspeed is is uh, taking out the guidance chips of the rockets and breaking them. And they do this to all but two rockets. There's only two rockets left at the end. Again, there's a lot of killing, a lot of violence, some action scenes. I'll let you enjoy those for yourself. But we get to the very end and. Uh, Let's see, there's two left, and uh, Mason and Goodspeed are in prison. They've kind of been caught, and they've been thrown into a cell. And this is the point where the deadline is up, where the government has not paid the money yet. There's still two rockets left on the island. Hummel has threatened to launch and kill all these people in San Francisco, and uh, and the, the deadline is up. He's not got his money. So now it's put up or shut up time for Hummel if he actually has the balls to kill all these innocent people in San Francisco. And this is one of the most iconic scenes in this movie where Hummel launches the rocket. And I always remember seeing this in the theater, seeing how cool it was, because you get, you get this first-person shot of him launching a rocket, 
bit, and it's going out over San Francisco, and it's really over San Francisco. They're not CGIing this at all. I mean, this is like the actual city. I don't know how they filmed it. And then at one point it goes over Candlestick Park. Over there, apparently there's a football game, a 49ers game, and anybody who knows San Francisco knows Candlestick's right there on the uh, inlet as you go up 101 on the uh, the west side of the bay. It's right there. And so the rocket goes over, and it's just this awesome shot. And then Hummel does this little thing on his laptop where he recalculates the coordinates. The rocket does not blow up over Candlestick. It goes into the water instead. And so basically this will lead to the finale of the movie where they only had two rockets left. He just wasted one by doing a bluff, like pretending he was going to kill people. And now all his men revolt. And all the Marines that thought they were here doing this noble thing and that they, had, they were going to go down with a, without a fight, they were all going to die for this cause, realize Hummel was just bluffing. And we have this big old Mexican standoff, and I know that sounds like a racist term, but that's that's a movie term, they say, that where everyone's guns are pointed at each other. And it's a uh, Quentin Tarantino special, as Steve mentioned earlier. And it's funny because I don't know if you know that Quentin Tarantino actually wrote some of the dialogue for the script. He was brought in as a script doctor. Yeah, I, I I was reading that uh, you have your your credited writers on this movie, but then you have these uncredited script doctors that include Tarantino and then Aaron Sorkin, who was tremendously influential in so many movies as well. And this time TV shows, The West Wing and all those sorts of things. And he was part of this as well. Yeah, it's just there's so many people behind this movie. And I, it's funny if you read Wikipedia that the script of this movie was just a mess because everyone was fighting over it and arguing over what, how it should be and who gets credit for it. But it's again, it's what's there on screen is an awesome ending. And yeah, so all the men get in this big standoff. And this is where Hummel accidentally or maybe not accidentally, but in there's a horrible moment where his number two in command Baxter pulls a gun on him and they all start shooting each other and basically everybody dies, but there's two little guys. I always forget the name Fry and what's uh, Tony Todd's name. Do you remember? Captain Darrow. Okay. Fry and Darrow. Yeah. So that's it's, they end up being the surprising boss fight at the end of this movie where Hummel gets killed by his own man and Mason and Goodspeed kind of rush out and they manage to uh, catch him as he's dying. And he's like, what have I done? I made a mistake. And you get this horribly sad scene of his head just tilting against the wall and falling down. He's been shot in the chest. And it's just, again, the music there is just awesome. It just, they, they treated Hummel with so much dignity in this movie. It's just astounding how much different it is than most uh, action movies. So anyway, all these bad guys are gone except these two guys. Uh, you said their name. And I've already forgotten. Fry and Darrow, which is interesting because the first time we're introduced to them early in the movie, it's made clear that there's a group of these guys who had fought with Hummel and he trusted them and he fought with them and they served under him in Vietnam and in Desert Storm. But Fry and Darrow, it sounds like to me, were brought in and he makes some comment about how so far what you've done, your reputation precedes yourself. So they weren't even part of the inner circle. And I think you see that as the movie gets toward the end. These are the two guys who are like, I need my money. You promised me money. It's time to fire these rockets. It's time to do what you said you were going to do. It's Hummel who's having this big moral dilemma. And then those two are the guys who end up being the last two standing who you would not have expected at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. And again, that's something I think people might not remember. These two were not originally part of Hummel's attache. They were uh, not part of his uh, original crew. They were just ringers that were brought on. So anyway, we have one rocket left and Goodspeed ends up getting the guidance chip to it. He ends up for some reason ends up with a little green ball, one of the VX balls of poison in his pocket. And He's going to get chased and crashed through windows for the next five minutes. I don't know how that ball doesn't crash, doesn't break open in his pocket, but we'll just kind of skip over that for now. And he basically have to till, kill the two guys left. 
And the first guy is Tony Todd Darrow. And uh, we get this famous scene where Nicolas Cage brings in, again, ca calling back to him introducing all these elements of classic rock into this movie, where he kills him after comparing him to Elton John's Rocket Man. And he's like, it's you. You're the Rocket Man. And he fires a rocket through Darrow. Darrow goes crashing out a window. It's kind of a cool scene. Uh, anything else you wanted to say about that one? Well, I, I just find this uh, this scene hilarious because, I mean, there's there's certainly a fair amount of violence in this movie, and 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 you obviously cannot say that it isn't. But this scene cracks me up because not only does uh, Cage open up the little switch and flip the switch, and the rocket fires into Tony Todd, and he crashes through this window, but then there's this great great shot right after that of the rocket flying off into the ocean and then you see tony todd flailing through the air um and then of course there's there's really no need to do it but the very next shot is tony todd of course coming down and impaling himself on some random incredibly sharp pointed object that just happens to be there and of course he lands perfectly on it just kind of a gratuitous impalement that really wasn't necessary but just another little fun twist to really knock this guy down a peg up on his death. Uh, yeah, when I was out at Alcatraz, I considered asking them to take me to the giant spiky metal pile of shards, but I, I chose not to ask about that. I think at that point you would have been thrown to the shark. <laughs> yeah. So really, we're down to one villain left in the movie, this guy uh, Fry, and Nicolas Cage has the last guidance chip. These, none of these rockets will fire without the guidance chip. He's got one little ball of VX gas left, and we come to this really maybe the most signature scene in the movie where Fry kind of tackles Nicolas Cage and Nicolas Cage somehow gets the ball of VX gas into his mouth and we've been told throughout the movie this is the worst substance on earth you don't want to see what happens when it gets in the air if it touches your skin it will melt your skin it's like the worst substance known to man Nicolas Cage shoves the ball of VX gas into Fry's mouth and then punches his jaw so the ball shatters in his mouth so he literally gets an entire mouthful of VX gas and here's kind of the payoff we've been waiting for this whole movie where they really are pretty uh, conservative in what they show, considering what a horrible death Fry probably <laughs> experienced right here. But you see him spitting it out and his, face, and his skin starts melting off and it's just this horrible scene. And then right after that, you see Nicolas Cage has a, he has somehow gotten VX gas on his skin as well. And all throughout the movie, he's, we've been warned, if you get VX gas on you, you must take adrenaline and inject it directly into your heart. Like in, again, Pulp Fiction, more Quentin Tarantino comparisons here. But uh, yeah, so Nicolas Cage has to inject himself with adrenaline into the heart. He gets to spasm. He gets to do his own little Nicolas Cage overacting thing on the ground. And as this is going on, all of a sudden, here come the F-18s that the government has sent in to nuke the island, to drop thermite plasma all over and kill everybody. And this really leads to what I would argue is probably my all-time favorite five-minute sequence in a movie, the ending of The Rock. Yeah, I, it, it's fascinating to me because uh, it's a great callback, uh, that whole last scene with, with Captain Fry, because... You know, two parts. It, 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 we didn't mention it, but if you remember at the beginning of the movie when Hummel and his men steal the rockets, one, the last one that they're trying to get out of the room busts open and the VX escapes and they actually have to lock the room with one of the guys still in there and to, to, to seal it off. And you see his face bubbling up and exploding. So we've already seen evidence of what this can do to someone. And then you get the the famous, you know, uh, Fry taking a big bite of it at the end. Um, but also there's the scene when we're first introduced to Goodspeed where he's having to go into that sealed off room and 
dismantle a package from uh, Bosnia or somewhere, which was having a civil war at the time, and it ends up with a sarin gas all over the place. And his coworker is basically told, hey, you've got to inject this giant needle into your heart. And he's just looking at the guy's going, are you kidding me? There's no way. And he turns around to Goodspeed, and Goodspeed says, get that thing away from me. So you, you can tell he has no interest whatsoever in ever putting this thing in his heart. But of course, you have to have him do it at the end of the movie so he can get this tremendous spasm scene that is only going to be befitting his character at the end. Uh, and, and of course, the, the tension, I mean, it's not a real time movie, but these last few minutes where you're playing out the, the cutting between are they going to do the rockets in time? You see the F-18s incoming and they're about ready to drop the bomb and just the tension. And then you cut to the scenes in the FBI headquarters and they're all on pins and needles. And, you know, and then, of course, his girlfriend has shown up and we found out that she's pregnant and she's there. And uh, the, the tension in those last few minutes is incredible. Yeah, just a master class in film editing. Just watch this last sequence with good speed passed out down on the ground. And basically what they've been told is if you neutralize the threat, you have to go outside and hold up these green flares. And that will alert us that the that the rockets have all been neutralized and there's no threat anymore. But they haven't seen those green flares. So here come the F-18s to destroy the entire island. And just, yeah, just I cannot say enough about how awesomely edited this is. This is one of the biggest rushes I have ever seen in a theater watching this and it's again it's like almost uh comparable comparable to Nicolas cage taking the adrenaline right to the heart if you want to see the movie equivalent of adrenaline right to your heart watch the ending of the rock where Nicolas cage is all bleary because he just injected himself and he's got to stagger outside and hold up the green flares and here come the f-18s and there's this awesome shot of them flying underneath the golden gate bridge and yeah. they're coming right in on san francisco bay and they're low so they won't attract radar and I on the uh, DVD, they have a whole section about how they piece together this and how some of it's CGI, some of it was models, some of it was real. And it's really fascinating how they put it together. But if you ever wanted to see how to build an action sequence, watch the ending of The Rock where Nicolas Cage staggers out. He holds up the green flares at the last moment and you get this really cool up angle shot. They kind of shoot him from crotch up. It's this really weird Michael Bay angle. And then the F-18s fly right over him and right before... Right before they drop their thermite plasma, one of the, the telescope people with the FBI sees the green flares. They're like, aboard, aboard, I see green smoke. And again, I'm just almost getting hyped up just thinking about the scene. I can almost recite it in my head. And then the F-18s go straight up as opposed to dropping the plasma. They fly straight up in the air to abort. One of them drops one of his uh, payload at the last minute accidentally, and it hits the island on the backside. And you get this big explosion, and Nicolas Cage screams. And again, it's... Again, I'm almost getting goosebumps just thinking about it because that might be my all-time favorite movie scene, and it's so cool. And again, I cannot just—I uh, don't know if I can capture what a rush that was in the theater seeing that. That was so cool, and I just—that's why I say if they ever, ever release The Rock, if there's ever like a 25th anniversary, 30th anniversary, and they put it in theaters again, go see it in a crowd. It's such an awesome rush right here at the ending. Well, and it just plays with your emotions too, because they're inter intercutting these scenes so tightly, and you're you're on the edge of your seat wondering, is he going to get the green flares up in time, and are they going to see him in time, are they going to board in time? And then you think that they've done it, and then you find out that, like you said, one of those planes did drop the thermite plasma before you know he could do the abort, but because so then you're like, oh, all of that's for nothing, you know, because it's this overhead shot of this huge explosion and you you know if you're not 
you know, too familiar with the geography or whatever, you know, for all you know, that that thing dropped right on the cell block and all the hostages are done and cages killed and Connery's blown back to Scotland and, you know, you don't know what's going on. And then so you're like, was it all for nothing? And then you find out after the dramatic, you know, fly through the air because of the force of the explosion that, okay, it was the backside of the island. It, it didn't hit the cell block. All the hostages are safe. Of course, we get, you know, Sean Connery diving down into the water to pull good speed up uh, and save his life. And, you know, all's well that ends well. But I just love that little twist where you're, you're, you're so suspenseful and then you think they've pulled it off and you think. And then for that split second, you're like, have they just messed with me this entire time? And it's, it's too late anyway. And then, you know, they, you, you find out the good guys won after all. Yeah, just a, a crazy ending and so well done. And I'm hoping maybe when I uh, when I edit this episode together, I'll put some of the music from that scene over me explaining it. Maybe I'll try to capture some of the same uh, mood. But yeah, just fantastic ending. And then Nicolas Cage and Connery both survive. And and uh, since Connery's a dead man, he was never supposed to exist in the first place. He basically has to disappear. So they agree on he's basically going to go and get a bunch of money that Cage left in a hotel room and he'll disappear and basically ostensibly go find his daughter and live a life of leisure somewhere in, in the world and he'll never go back to jail. And But he does have one last thing, and this is the thing that I always love about The Rock, that we end on a laugh. Like, this is such a big, suspenseful, just tense, tight movie, but we end on a laugh, and it's because... Uh, Connery, this whole movie, and John Mason has been in possession of this microfilm that he apparently obtained when he was British secret intelligence that has all these American secrets, like what happened at Roswell, what happened to JFK. And he tells Cage, he's like, you know, if you ever like to uh, go for a, uh, a travel or go on a holiday somewhere, I would suggest going to this place. And he gives him a little piece of paper which says uh, St. Michael's Church front pew hollow leg. And, and Goodspeed's like, is this what I think it is? And then Mason just disappears. And then all the FBI agents run out there and they're like, where's Mason? Did he die? Did he get vaporized? I want to see the body. Where's that bastard? And like, that's Womack, that piece of shit. And uh, Cage is like, oh no, he, he vaporized. He's gone. You'll never see him. And they're like, what? No, that's too bad. So so anyway, Mason's gone and it ends with, with a good speed and his girlfriend, now wife. They go out to Kansas and they steal the the front leg of a pew in the church and in it is the microfilm that Connery's been holding on to for 35 years with all the American secrets on it and it ends with uh, Goodspeed saying to his wife hey he's looking at the microfilm do you want to know what really happened to JFK and that's the end of the movie as they're driving off being chased by this irate priest and again just such a fun fantastic movie that I I know it gets a lot of love again like you said at the start it's kind of kind of an odd choice for a movie that are under love. I just had so much I wanted to say about this one to get people to appreciate it even more. And that's, I really, I think I'm guessing you're probably in the same way. This seems like one that's really important to you too. Oh, absolutely. And I, I remember when that movie ended and, and the way they ended it, you know, it wasn't as, as typical then nowadays, it seems like every movie they want to turn it into a franchise. And so every movie ends with some possibility of how they could spin it off into a sequel but that wasn't nearly as common 20 years ago. But you could totally see at the end of this movie, okay, you could theoretically make a second movie. And I think I read that, in particular, uh, producer uh, Jerry Bruckheimer thought, you know, there there could definitely be a possibility of a sequel. And the sequel would be, okay, now Nicholas Goodspeed is in possession of the microfilm and the government's after him and they want to get it back. And so he calls on Mason to help him. And, you know, it's totally set up for a second one, which, of course, never happened and never will. but 
Um, that, that was a little more unusual at that time to even think about, oh, wow, they're setting this up for another one. But like you said, it's such a humor-filled movie that to end it that way wasn't just about potentially setting it up for a sequel. It's also to give you one more little lighthearted, fun moment at the very end, which really fits the, the theme of the movie is all this humor interspersed with all. You just come off this incredible last 20 minutes and then you end on a light note. Uh, and I think that really that really was a perfect way to end this movie. Yeah, and it's funny because I know specifically Roger Ebert notoriously didn't really like action movies. He liked The Rock. And I remember I was just reading the review right before we started this podcast, and he specifically points out because of the humor in it. He goes, there's not a small not a small amount of humor in this movie, and that's something that's a little different in most of these movies. Like, it takes itself seriously when it has to, but there's so many little releases of tension throughout the movie where Cage is saying something goofy or Sean Connery's doing some James Bond le- reference. Like, for people who don't know, there's a reference in this movie to when a James Bond movie, I think it's uh, Diamonds Are Forever, there's a line in that movie where uh, one of the actresses says, uh, Hi, I'm Plenty O'Toole, and he's like, But of course you are. <laughs> and they literally rip that line off and throw it into the rock where Stanley Goodspeed says, I'm Stanley Goodspeed. And Connery says, but of course you are. Like, there's little references like that to other movies. They play around with Sean Connery's mystique. They play around with Nicolas Cage just being a spaz. Again, just so much fun stuff. And I, I cannot keep overemphasizing that this was the movie in 1996 that just absolutely blew everything else away. And that was the summer that everything was supposed to be bigger and better than any summer before. But The Rock was the one and The Rock kind of uh, stands out over the years and holds up. And, and like you said, Steve, it's a one off. They never did a sequel. They never tried to franchise it. It's a great one off. It's one of these great movies set in San Francisco. And again, if. If our gift is that we've shared our love of this movie with the world, I think we've done well, because this is just one that I, I have so much love for. Well, yeah, if nothing else, uh, I'm not assuming that we're going to be having a bunch of people listen to this that have never seen it before. But if, if that's the case, then they go seek this out and check it out, and hopefully they'll love it as much as we do. But maybe someone who hasn't seen it for 20 years or saw it when it first came out or saw maybe, you know, an edited version on TNT where they, you know take all the words, all the F words and turn them into fudge or whatever. And they want to watch it for real. Maybe they'll, you know, go back and see some of these little moments that we've talked about. And, and, uh, maybe they'll, they'll learn to love it a little bit more. And that's, that's the hope because they just, you know, we kind of alluded to it earlier nowadays with so much reliance on CGI and all these sorts of things. And it seems like every other movie these days is a comic book movie and so forth. It just kind of harkens back to a different era when when action movies were really at their peak, I think. And and uh, maybe people can appreciate it or, or just they've thought they've forgotten how much they loved it and they need to go check it out again. The 90s were just such a fun time. The middle 90s and spe- specifically, what a fun time to be alive and just be a fan of action movies. Just, you know, movie after movie after movie, just a fun little string of uh again, comedy slash action movies. That's when they really kind of perfected the formula, I would say. Absolutely agree. Perfect way to put a great time to be alive. Well, Steve, I really appreciated you coming by. This was one of those podcasts. I swear, I think we could do another half hour, but I've always sworn I'd I'd cap these at an hour and a half. We've already gone an hour and a half, and I I feel like we jumped over like huge sections of the movie. I feel horrible, but again, I just just know an hour and a half is about the attention span I can really rely on. So I just want to uh, thank you for stopping by. This was a fun one to talk about. And I say this in the nicest possible way with the most respect I can. Why don't you cut the chit-chat a-hole? Well, thank you for uh, having me, Mario. I found myself a little intimidated 
um, with, with a man of your stature discussing movies. Cause I know what a huge movie guy you are. And, and, and so I, I just wanted to do it justice. So I hope in the name of Zeus's butthole that I've, I've done this movie justice and I really appreciate you having me on. <laughs> yeah. And again, my, my name is Mario Lanza. This is staff picks. Uh, you can reach me at email staff at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter at Mario J Lanza. And until the next time I talk to you, I will be out there looking for the underrated, underloved, underappreciated movies. And I'll try to find somebody interesting to come on and talk about them until the next time I talk to you guys throw down. Let me see if I can get this straight. You went down the incinerator chute, on the mine car, through the tunnels to the power plant, under the steam engine, that was really cold by the way, and into the cistern through the intake pipe, but <clears throat> how, in the name of Zeus's butthole, did you get out of your cell? I only ask because in our current situation, well, it could prove to be useful information. Maybe!